Hello, I'm Jamila Rizvi and this is Anonymous Was a Woman, a Future Women and Penguin podcast. This is a show about books, a show about ideas, about the experiences of women and women authors and what all those issues mean when they come together. My co-host is Astrid Edwards from The Garrett Podcast and our guest today is Kerridwin Dovey. Ticking through all of those feelings that we women have been accused of having far too many of, today we are going to talk about lust and I am joined as always by my co-host Astrid Edwards. Hi Astrid. Hi Jamila. It's a saucy topic today. It is a saucy topic and I have to say you chose this topic and I am very interested to see where you take it. Are you worried that I'm going to make you read Fifty Shades of Grey? This might be the time to admit that I have read the entire trilogy of Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh my gosh. Oh look I mean I've read the first one right and that in itself is a subject of shame but you could argue that I was researching a trend of our modern times but you read the whole trilogy look I started off many many years ago I was a bookseller and I felt some kind of obligation to actually read the world's most horrendous trilogy it honestly does have to be some of I'm sorry I'm not usually this mean but it has to be some of the worst writing that I've ever come across in my life and I still do not understand what made it so so popular because there's a whole heap of you know soft mummy porn out there and yet this one this one in particular made its mark on the world today we are going to talk about lust and love in literature and in non-fiction as well but we're going to talk about it with you know some slightly more quality books and with some slightly more quality authors and I want to begin Astrid by talking power imbalances For so long, it's been a really familiar trope in literature to have a power imbalance between the people in a romantic couple. And of course, throughout history, most of those romantic couples have been male-female because, you know, get up to date world. Anyway, often the driver of those romantic liaisons is the power imbalance. It's not just something that's present between a couple. It's kind of what pushes them along, right? So what I want to explore with you today is whether or not in fiction we can have a meaningful relationship of equals depicted on the page and have it be just as interesting. Oh, this is a fascinating topic, Jamila. The first thing I'm going to say being the nerd here in this discussion is that all great fiction and narrative nonfiction is driven by tension and you know what more human source of tension can we find than romantic relationships and if there's tension in a relationship often there is a power imbalance so I think that might be one of the reasons but also then there's a couple of hundred years of patriarchy in literature that have really written in submissive female characters so often which is horrible even if I think about my most beloved sort of classics I'm going to go back in time a bit here and then we can come to more modern books but if I think about the classics that I loved the most and the romantic relationships that I loved the most on a page when I first read them I think about Elizabeth Bennet surprise 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 in Pride and Prejudice and I think about Mr Darcy but even in that relationship straight away we're talking about a woman who is feisty who is clever who is well read so we give her some real power in that sense but she's also significantly poorer 
than the object of her affection. She is at a disadvantage in so many ways going into that relationship. So even though we elevate her through her intelligence, which wasn't necessarily something valued in a woman at the time, she begins on a lower footing. And the whole book really is about social climbing through love. Absolutely. And you can never take away the sheer horrifying fact that she will not have a future if she doesn't get hitched, uh, whether she loves the guy or not, which is a massive power imbalance. I found myself thinking back to an old classic of my childhood, Tess the Durbervilles from Thomas Hardy. And in that, the protagonist is female, Tess, and Tess is basically confronted by two masculine archetypes. There's Angel, I mean, they actually called the guy Angel and he is like supposed to be the nice guy. And then Alec d'Urberville, the satanic, swarthy, rich guy. And they're both horrible caricatures of masculinity, but also they're her only choices. And I kid you not, she ends up dead at the end with, you know, the angel taking her younger, hotter sister. I, I, I don't understand why they put that in school for me. And that was certainly not any kind of meaningful relationship for Tess from either man. Another one that really defined my early reading and my early ideas of love, which is horrifying in retrospect, was Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell, which is still one of the only books of more than a thousand pages that I've managed to get through in my life. But at the close of that book, despite being, again, this powerful woman, particularly in her time, who was willing to stand up for herself, who was self-made after the war, who got on with it. Scarlett O'Hara, she was flawed in so many ways. And yet at the close of that book, spoilers folks, it's Rhett Butler, the man that she suddenly realised she's been in love with all along, who rejects her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... I don't think I've ever quite got over that one. I'm still angry. Wasn't there a sequel? I think there is a sequel and I admit to never having read it. And I also feel like it maybe is an early example of writing sequels to get the money and really not having a story that anybody wants to engage with. Am I being really cynical? No, I think you're not at all. And also, I'm a massive fan of that book and I have never touched the sequel. So let's let's fast forward, right? Let's fast forward to more modern times. And if we think about fiction of today my sense is that if you talk about reading a romance when we classify something as a romance we straight away classify it as something that's not very good that's not a great work of literature so we don't really value romance as much today in our novels as we used to do you think that's fair I think it's fair in a sense I think that everybody who does love romance and you know there is a romance guild of Australia for budding romance writers I think they would disagree violently and think that romance is the best genre out there but stepping out of uh, the regular readers who go to that place in the library or in the bookshop to buy the romance novels the rest of us maybe have a faint whiff of it's a bit simple or it's a bit girly or it's a bit dated and we stay away So I confess to being very poorly read in that typical romance genre. But when you proposed this topic to me and I thought, well, what great books have I read with a great love story or with a great relationship between two people? I really struggled. Yeah. Did you get it? Because you are a huge reader. You devour a lot. And even if we step away from that pure romance genre, which I'll admit is also not something I'm that into, but even if we stick to broader literary fiction – In that space, you know, I mean, stories of humanity are stories of love, right? And yet, are there any great relationships where that power imbalance hasn't existed or has existed the other way, right? 
where uh, you've got a couple and it's the woman who's coming to the relationship with genuine power. I'm interested to know if you can think of one that is more modern, anything made in the last 10 years, let's say, where you feel like it transcends that old ugly trope. Look, I didn't find that. Now, I walked around all my books and I have done a bit of Googling and I didn't find anything that really fit that brief. I found beautiful, beautiful works that do have relationships in them that drive a bit of the narrative and are wonderful, but not that really show me that that lust and that that endless love and that passion that in any way is kind of not a bit 19th century and outdated. That's so sad, isn't it? I, however believe I have one. I did come up with one. Do tell. Have you read The Rosie Project by Graham Simpson? Yes, I have. Okay. So you're talking about a story of a man with Asperger's who is a university professor who falls in love with this woman called Rosie, who as you read through this book, oh, He sets up his designs on her. It is ultimately a romance. He goes after what he wants. But because he is differently abled, you've got a guy in this story who straight away has externally, I think for the average reader, he has lower status. And I hate that that's the case, but he is very much at a disadvantage when it comes to the language of lust and the language of romance because he struggles to have those interactions with someone whose mind works differently to his. And yet it is the most beautiful relationship uh, once it comes to pass. And I, I, one of my favourite scenes in the book is where um, the main character, Don, who's this genetics professor at university, sits down with one of his friends and devises a questionnaire to assess the suitability of potential female partners. And it, it, to me, it felt like a really honest depiction of love and of romance. I uh, enjoyed the list he used to write of all the good food that he was going to cook to make Rosie happy. (laughs) I also have to say there is a real lack of modern literature that is about lust and love in a happy couple with children. Do you know what I mean? If you think about all of the books that we read about couples with children, the lust element usually comes in because they're having an affair. It is quite unusual to show lust on the page for the person you've chosen to spend your life with. I also think there's a real lack of literature for non-heterosexual couples, or not for, about non-heterosexual couples. I was really horrified when I sat down to kind of come up with my ideas uh, and to have a think about this segment that there's just not a lot available. Uh, When you look to the screen, I think screen and television are probably ahead of literature when it comes to publishing LGBT acts of romance and stories of romance. I agree. I would say that YA, so young adult fiction in Australia, and also fantasy and science fiction, the genres are doing much better than general commercial fiction and literary fiction. But agree with you. I mean, there's a massive void. That's probably because the next generation is just doing better generally. Absolutely. (laughs) They're more inclusive. They're more awesome. For them, all of this stuff goes without saying. And yet there are older generations still having a little bit of a struggle, right? Totally. Ojam, I would love to have recommended to me some great examples of contemporary fiction, especially contemporary Australian fiction, of, you know, great lust and passion in a relationship of equals. (sighs) Girls can dream, right? This is what we want to see on the page. And a reminder to me that so much of our uh, literary canon is still 
for the male gaze and about men, right? And it's the kind of relationships that even women are taught to dream of and to think about and want to escape to are these relationships of non-equals. I want a pinup couple. I want a pinup couple who are equals. I cannot think of the perfect example in fiction. I can, however, think of one in non-fiction. And I am about to throw a biography at you that I think is actually a love story. One of the most anticipated memoirs of 2018, Astrid, was Becoming by Michelle Obama. Now, I know this is a bit of a strange book to put forward in our episode about lust and perhaps reveals a bit more about me than we wanted to know. But this memoir for me was at its core not a political story and not even the story of raising a family. It was an epic story of love. Have you read it? I have read it, Jam, and I have to say it was one of the most interesting political biographies I have come across. Normally they're very anodyne, very very staid, very on message, and Michelle Obama just goes where she wants, and that is so beautiful. I've just opened up my copy, which I read a little while ago, and the structure is becoming me, becoming us, becoming more. If there has ever been a relationship of equals, it must be Michelle and Barack Obama. I think we should warn everyone that coming up is a real crush on these two because I have no objectivity in this space. I start with the very fact that she published her biography first, which means they. I know they did a joint book deal around writing their biographies and telling their stories for some extraordinary amount of money. Clearly a decision was made between them and then with their publisher that Michelle's biography would be published first. And usually when a politician retires from office or leaves office and exits public life, so to speak, they are very, very quick to get their biography out there. The idea is that you've got to go fast while you're still relevant to what is happening in contemporary political debate. And yet I just have this image in my head of Barack Obama standing back and saying, no, your turn, your turn in the spotlight, your turn to tell the story from your perspective. Oh, oh, what a dreamboat. They are a couple of dreamboats, but this goes through all of their lives, you know, how they met, uh, how they fell in love, how they maybe ignored each other or didn't get it right at the start. It's all very um, adorable and cute. And at various points, she actually has been his boss and she has been in control of his career, if I could phrase it like that. And they've clearly always had this mutual respect and that has been in their personal life and in their career. And, you know, going right up to beyond this book, what they've done since Michelle Obama published her memoir, they've found it a creative film company, you know, funding stories that need to be told. I actually can't think of a more equal relationship anywhere in the world right now. You mentioned the three sections of the book, Becoming Me, Becoming Us and Becoming More. That that first third of the book, uh, while not about love, so to speak, or lust, uh, does paint this really fascinating picture of Obama's childhood in 1960s Chicago. And this picture emerges of this little black girl who just doesn't fit in doesn't fit in with her peers Uh, and for her she buries herself in her schooling which I think really sets her up for this middle third of the book where she meets the young Barack Obama and it is a relationship of equals because as you say she was his boss at a law firm for a period of time this is a hugely intelligent and accomplished woman in her own right but I have to say it's the central third of the book which is devoted to her 
romance uh, with Barack Obama that really uh, stayed with me the most. There are those beautiful, famous photographs of the two of them together uh, after the inauguration ball where they're in the lift and there's Secret Service people everywhere and they're just being affectionate. And I think as the public, we really got treated into an insight into the fact that it felt like it was an endlessly passionate and affectionate relationship, you know what I mean? And yet in her memoir, she is incredibly candid about times where that wasn't the case, where it was difficult. She talks about um, particularly the struggles that she had with IVF, with trying to get pregnant and how much of a strain that put on their relationship when she was going through this horrendous emotional and physical turmoil and her husband was really kind of more focused on politically what was happening at the time. And I think what I what I liked about her candidness in that respect was the biography doesn't paint this image of a perfect relationship. It paints this image of a tremendous love story for the ages. There are shades of grey in there, not 50 shades, good shades. There are lovely shades. One of the images I remember is Barack Obama kind of getting lost in his books and kind of forgetting his family just for a short period of time. But, you know, going that really intellectual President Obama type thing that we came to see in public for eight years and Michelle having to wave and get his attention and and bring him back to reality, bring him back to the family. But then other times of him wandering around playing with the girls or trying to find two hours as president to, you know, have a romantic dinner with his chosen partner for life just think about it jam like that was eight years in the white house without a sex scandal i am starting every sentence with i loved because there is so much i i I loved (laughs) around this memoir i think if michelle obama's intention was to relate the story of her relationship as it was and not as a fairy tale then she she really did do that while not taking away from the shine of the love affair At one stage in the memoir, she describes the pressures of being this, she doesn't call herself this, but this is what she is, this brilliant, go-getting, ambitious woman, right, who is married to an equally ambitious and formidable man. And I wrote down this quote, Astrid, which was, I was deeply, delightfully in love with a guy whose forceful intellect and ambition could possibly end up swallowing mine. Oh, that that really sat with me heavily, that idea of feeling like the person you love is so amazing and has such potential for influence in the world that you might end up having to take a back seat. And the pain of that knowledge and having to deal with the tension between your own burning ambition for what you want to be in life and what you want to achieve and the fact that you're in love with someone and you want to be with them forever. It is such a beautiful love story, even though we witnessed it and it wasn't perfect for anybody involved, but like that is the relationship, right? Like intellectual lust. Goals, hey? <laughs> We've talked a lot today, Astrid, about the middle third of Becoming, which focuses on the Obama's relationships. But I also want to touch on the final third, which is the two of them arriving in the White House with their daughters and their relationship taking on a new heaviness, I suppose, because the presidency began to weigh on Barack Obama's sense of frivolity, his sense of fun, because gravity, 
the gravity of his job, the gravity of the choices he was making started to invade their family life. And and her intention is very much to create this sense of normalcy for her children as much as possible. And that becomes her focus. And she talks about losing the sense of fun and joyousness a little bit. I think what I adore so much about this memoir is that it is a book of ups and downs. It is a book of truth. It is a book of how a very big life can impact the smallest of life, the life that we have intimately with our partner and perhaps our children. And it is a wonderful story of love. And it is also just one hell of a political biography. Our guest today is Keridwen Dovey. She was born in South Africa and raised between South Africa and Australia. She is one of my favourite authors. You might be familiar with her from her debut novel, Blood Kin. You might have read Only the Animals, which was described by The Guardian as a dazzling imagined history of humans. But Today, I think we're mostly going to be focused on her work in the Garden of the Fugitives. And Keridwen is joining us now. How are you doing? Hi, Jam. Hi, Astrid. I am, you know, hanging in there as we all are. We are talking today about love and lust, which when you are living the isolation life and as I am dressed daily in track pants and Ugg boots, and it's a special treat for my husband if I consider washing my hair. They're kind of strange topics to be exploring. But we do want to talk to you today about power imbalances because Astrid and I were saying just earlier that power imbalances between a couple often fuel lust and they're often the driver of romantic liaisons in literature. When you're writing, do you think about power imbalances between two people who are in love? Oh, absolutely. And actually, when you guys originally got in touch, and I think that you sort of said, we might be talking about books where there's a love story between equals. And I started racking my brain to think of novels that actually have a love story between equals that is also like a gripping, addictively readable novel. And I actually couldn't think of very many at all, um, because I think what the novel form lends itself to so well is that ambivalence. For me, what I'm looking for when I'm reading long form fiction is the kind of darker sides to all of this. The, yeah, the exactly the power imbalances and how that fuels lust and the kind of obsessive stuff and the stalkery stuff and the, you know the stuff that we sort of sweep under the carpet of our, our normal lives. It lets us have this thought experiment outside of our own ethics and our own moral thinking even. And for me, that's really a big part of why I read fiction. I'm so glad, Caradrin, that you racked your brains and couldn't think of a huge number of fiction novels, whether contemporary or not, uh, that had a healthy um, a healthy relationship somewhere in there uh, because Jamila and I could not think of them either. So uh, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> really I'm glad, glad it's about... not that I'm just a weirdo in my reading habits. <laughs> Look, they're really not out there. Now, in the Garden of the Fugitives, it's clear from the very first pages that we are dealing with a relationship that does have some sort of structural power imbalances. We have a young, you know, 21-year-old-ish student who is kind of financially at the beck and call shall we say, of a wealthy middle-aged man who, you know, is the controller of her scholarship. So she obviously wants to please him in certain ways. And he is weirdly obsessed with her. Now, as a reader, this is for me instantly intriguing. 
But uh, it's not the only power imbalance that we see in in the Garden of, of the Fugitives. When we go back in time uh, to Royce, who you know becomes this middle aged man, he actually has this uh, love from afar with his best friend Kitty, and Kitty herself is involved in in a relationship with an older man that is one of those traditional power imbalance kind of setups. He's older, he uh, has a better career than her, he is financially independent, he has uh, controls her academic future. There are so many different power imbalances in this novel and they all kind of, they all struck me as quite not feminist, <laughs> if I can put it that way, Karen. That's sort of, for me, what drives all my fiction. And I mean, my books are so strange and each one is just doesn't seem to be in conversation with the one that came before. But I guess if I had to pick an overarching theme, it would exactly, it would be power imbalance, but also that gray space between. So I'm not really interested in looking just at the perpetrators or just at the victims, but you know, that kind of somewhere, and that's where Vita, the, the sort of main character in the novel is, was fun to write because, you know, she can play either side. You know, she throughout that novel is flipping back and forth from being a victim to beneficiary to perpetrator and then back again. Um, and that's really, I think, yeah, where I like to go. And I think in terms of the relationships in the novel, you know, the love triangle is also a tried and tested staple of, of um, any great fiction about relationships because it's that dramatic tension that holds the book um, together in a way. And I think that's why we were all struggling to think of a great novel that was also just about a love relationship between two equals, because where is the, you know, that tension coming from? And it's that third prong in the, in the love triangle that I think drives and fuels all of those kinds of, um, yeah, uncertainties and, and also uh, cruelties that I think people are going to, you know, in any relationship sort of inflict on each other. It was fun. It's weird to say it was fun to write something so dark, but um, yeah, I, I guess that erotic charge also, which is, we don't speak as much about it anymore and it's complicated in an age of Me Too to speak about it. But one of the things I've always been interested in is that erotic charge of um, intellectual engagement and the teaching, the position between teacher and student or mentor and mentee. And there's an erotic charge there, whether it's not, you know, necessarily a sexual one, but the spark between, you know, minds is, is a kind of sexy thing. And um, so I was also interested in trying to represent some of that on the page. Um, and in that I'm influenced by Jane Kutsia, my, my, author crush um because I think he's always gone there in his fiction you know he's unafraid to look at how um in so many of his books you've got an older usually man and a younger woman who are doing a kind of dance an erotic dance that's around that's got some really dark elements to it but he, I think he's also you know influenced by all those French theorists that he was reading who I still don't fully understand but that idea of the jouissance, the er erotic joy of reading and learning from another person. And for me, actually, even just the act of reading a novel and that sort of intersubjective meeting of minds, it's a sort of erotic act too, you know, it's, it's more intimate in a way than anything you can do with your, 
with your body. Caridwen, I think about my own life and my own romantic relationships and my relationship with my husband and they're so far away from the kinds of things that I read on the page. When I'm listening to you there, the word that kind of springs to mind uh, to describe the liaisons that you're talking about is dangerous. There's a sense of danger, whether it's physical danger or the danger of getting hurt, the danger of getting found out and what repercussions there might be. Are we drawn to the idea that something is more romantic, more passionate when there is an underlying sense of dangerous repercussion? And I love that you use the word dangerous because I was going to mention that In the Garden of the Fugitives is written, structured around letters written between the two characters. And of course, the original epistolary novel is Dangerous Liaisons. And that, when I was thinking about what's the hottest, one of the hottest books that I've read, I would have to put that up there. And yeah, I think it's, um, again, for me, it's what literature lets us uh, do. So it's actually the effect that language is having honest it's not just the escape from reality of like binge watching tv which is you know can be hot in different ways but I think again there's something about the um having somebody's internal thoughts represented on the page in a way that we can never really in real life um when we are interacting we've always got those social masks on even when you're with a partner right you never quite know what's going on in their mind and so what's so intimate about literature in the form of a novel is that you get to see that on the page and in a in a novel of letters that's also the erotic charge between the characters is that um, there's a kind of game that they're playing so you can't take at face value what they are writing yet it's also coming from some internal sense of self and then it's kind of meeting in the middle in this battle of wit and um you know kind of yeah a really interesting way to um portray that charge between two minds on the on the page I really like that you describe it as sort of game playing because I think when I was playing with these topics in my mind I started to organize it as lust and game playing being absolutely interconnected so much of it is about that guessing what the other one is thinking guessing what they're feeling and guessing Uh, those things from their behavior or their words and yet in a genuine relationship of equals in a partnership uh, where you are in love and there is trust you are removing the guessing and the game playing right you are playing hopefully less games because you're more open and upfront and honest with one another can that ever be as electrically charged on the page as those relationships of non-equals? That's such a good question. And I wonder if it's also that, you know, so much of the literature that's made it into the canon and that we now celebrate as classics has been written by men. I have wondered myself, like I'm 11 years into a marriage and I keep wondering like where are the novels that portray how that love and lust change, you know, over time. And it's not that they 
<laughs> that it goes away or anything like that. It actually deepens in other ways. But again, just to see that on the page, I, I haven't. The one book I could think of was Patrick White's Tree of Man that I just remember being really struck by following this couple over the course of their whole lives and sort of the ups and downs and the way that their love came and went. But in terms of lust, like if we just, you know, ring fencing it around lust, then I don't know. I think it is, there's something about us as humans where it's the masks that we are asked to put on in each different encounter and the many, many selves that we all contain that we get to call on, you know, we're in certain situations in real life. But then in literature, we get to explore it to infinity, right? We get to live millions of lives through the books that we read that we could never live in person. And yeah, that's that's just such a wonderful thing that we have access to as, as creatures. Karen, I'd like to go back to what you just said about the canon. It's millennia of mostly privileged men writing the stories that they felt like writing and they felt like reading to a very privileged audience. Um, there are very few... Uh, female writers uh, in that canon, in the Western tradition I'm, I'm referring to. I mean, there's only one female erotic poet I can think of, uh, Sappho, uh, in the Greek tradition. Stepping back from that massive structural problem, are you aware of any contemporary writers who are not only starting to rewrite the canon and write a new contemporary canon that is telling all of our stories in a better way, but that are writing about longing and lust? And even if it's not quite what we've been talking about in terms of a, an equal power relationship, but you know, are we rewriting the types of relationships that we are seeing in literature? Who is doing that well? Yeah, I think that, oh, that's a great question. I mean, I guess Sally Rooney comes to mind straight away because you know the way that she portrays those sorts of millennial engagements and the talk about love triangles and the complexities there and the way that she writes sex on the page is so. Um, just refreshing and I've never seen it done like that before so I love her work and then actually my first finished quarantine novel because I haven't had a whole lot of time to read because of the kids but um is Fleischman is in trouble the novel by Taffy oh Professor I love that isn't it so good and the way that she describes the dating like online this guy you know Toby who's newly divorced and he's getting on the dating apps but he's 41 or something. And um, and the sexual encounters that he has, I found just absolutely fascinating. Actually more interesting than I found the Rachel character, the wife's characters once. I felt like she really, you know, just nailed something about modern love um, in the way that she described those encounters and the, the forthrightness of the way that lust was allowed to be kind of expressed between strangers. And yeah, I found that really amazing. Again, also in the sense that I hadn't seen that done on the page in a non creepy or non, it's non creepy. It's not judgy. It's just something really true about it. Caridwen, I don't know if we have solved this question of love and lust on the page in a way that sits comfortably with my feminist ideals. I desperately want it to be sexy to have a relationship of equals that is built on a foundation of respect. Sadly, it seems that that might not be possible. Nonetheless, it has been an absolute joy to talk with you, particularly about the Garden of the Fugitives. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.
Astrid, it is that time again where I start hitting you up for recommendations, my well-read friend. I want some fiction for adults that's going to get me in the lusty mood. Okay, well, I'd like to recommend Atonement by Ian McEwan. Now, this is an oldie published in 2001 and it was shortlisted for the booker back then and in 2010, Time actually named it as one of the 100 greatest English novels of all time. In Atonement, we have Cecilia and Robbie, two young lusty lovers from different class backgrounds in England, and they are seen by Cecilia's younger sister, Bryony, and Bryony doesn't understand what lust looks like. She doesn't understand what passion and sex and being close to someone might look like, and she misconstrues the whole thing as an assault. As you go through the novel, it appears that her making this mistake and not understanding what you know adult lust looks like um, has horrific ramifications that stay with her and her family for her entire life for decades and at the core of it it is this beautiful tale of lust and love and that kind of loss of childhood innocence because kids don't understand what adults do so that's my recommendation for atonement by ian McEwen. but jam i know you expect me to have more and i have to admit i flailed around on this one and i don't so i'm going to ask you what books about lust or love do you have to recommend for me oh no this is terrifying i don't do the recommendations today you do my friend Okay, all right. The first I want to suggest is The Time Traveller's Wife, which is by Audrey Niffinger. Have you read this one? I have actually, yes, many years ago. It's a really beautiful and quite um, funny uh, tale of these two people who meet and fall in love. Very classic boy meets girl stuff. But there is a twist and that is that one of the pair cannot stop slipping in and out of time. So the idea is you've got Claire, who's this, I think she's an art student, and Henry, who's a librarian. Oh, who wouldn't fall in love with a librarian? And they've known each other since Claire was six and Henry was 36. This feels impossible and this feels ridiculous, but the reason is that Henry has something that the author has made up called chronodisplacement disorder, which means his genetic clock resets and he finds himself misplaced somewhere in time. And so he gets pulled into these moments of past, future, present, and disappears at a moment's notice. And yet these these two people, Claire and Henry, are attempting to live a normal, romantic, ordinary life with friends and jobs and children in this kind of mad idea of a world. That is a great recommendation, Jem. The second one I want to recommend is by Khalid Hosseini. Khalid Hosseini wrote The Kite Runner, which is, I think, the best known work, which has been turned into quite a famous film now as well. Khalid also wrote A Thousand Splendid Sons, which is actually a much more female view of Afghanistan compared to The Kite Runner. It's again a story that looks at Afghani history um, over a period of I think around 30 or 40 years. So it is that kind of chronicle of time and it is, to my mind, it's actually stronger than The Kite Runner. It's about two women who are born one generation apart and how they're brought together by war and fate and, and shared loss. They, they both live in Kabul and they come to form this bond that is a bond for the generations. And I think it shows, I don't want to give this book away because it's so good, but the, the book shows how a woman's love for her family, both her partner, her children and her friends who have become like sisters. It shows the 
that extraordinary love and how it translates into acts of amazing self sacrifice I feel like I'm talking in circles a bit here because I do not want to give it away but it is a really beautiful story of love in different forms I think and love that sometimes we can't admit to because of country and culture and the people around us well that's it I'm adding it to my list and if we've got time Astrid I've got one more and it's a cookbook a cookbook I am recommending a cookbook Jerusalem by Yotam Ottolenghi, really anything by Yotam Ottolenghi. He's a beautiful human. But Jerusalem, if you want to cook something utterly glorious, slowly and sensually over a long period of time that will fill your house with beautiful smells and then absolutely get you in the mood once you've eaten the meal, you want to cook from Yotam Ottolenghi's Jerusalem. I'm going to take that on board and maybe give it to my partner, Jeff. <laughs> Anonymous Was a Woman is a podcast made in partnership between Future Women and Penguin Books. We're produced by Bad Producer Productions. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find Anonymous Was a Woman. And while you're there, you may as well subscribe and that way you will never miss an episode. 